The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. Washington eases trade restrictions on China's Huawei, allowing U.S. companies to keep doing business with the firm for the next three months. Meanwhile, Huawei's founder warns there will be conflict with the U.S. as Chinese chipmakers rebound and broader markets climb. Uh, the Fed chair, Jerome Powell, warns on rising corporate debt, but says it's not posing a threat to the greater financial system. And in an exclusive interview with CNBC, the Fed President Rafael Bostic says he's not expecting a rate cut in the near future. I'm not expecting a rate cut to be imminent, certainly not by September. Things would need to happen in order for that to play out. At this hour, the Federal Communications Commission backs the T-Mobile Sprint merger. Now it's up to the DOJ. Plus, Apple shares closed more than 3% lower after a price target cut from HSBC. And it's not quite a pie in the face. Brexit party leader Nigel Farage is hit with a milkshake during EU election campaigning. Let's kick off the program this morning by focusing on the latest on Huawei. The founder of the business, Ren Zhengfei, says the United States, quote, underestimates the tech company's capabilities. In an interview with the Chinese state broadcaster CCTV, Ren said the U.S. decision to allow Huawei to continue buying American-made goods for the next three months means little to the company, which he says has been prepared for such a scenario. He added Huawei can make the chips it buys from the US, but cautioned it would not stop buying US tech. Eunice has the latest from Beijing. Huawei's founder told the Chinese state media that the US is underestimating his company's strength. Run Zhengfei spoke to a group of Chinese journalists on CCTV this morning, where he dismissed the U.S.'s decision to walk back a ban on his business, saying the move didn't mean much to Huawei, since his team was already prepared for any potential disruptions. Run said in times of peace, Huawei sources half of its chips from the United States, but that it could also make its own. The Commerce Department had earlier put Huawei on a blacklist that would essentially cut off its supply of U.S. components. But overnight, the department said the U.S. would grant Huawei a reprieve for 90 days. The decision allows Huawei to maintain its current networks and software updates for Huawei smartphone users, including Google's. Google had suspended some of its business with Huawei, but The Wall Street Journal is now reporting that the U.S. tech giant has put those plans on hold. As for Huawei's 5G ambitions, Run said that he believes that no one would be able to catch up with Huawei for the next two to three years. Eunice Yoon, CBC Business News, Beijing. Uh, so another twist and turn in the Huawei story here, and I'm a little bit confused as to how we got to a point where immediately those restrictions were imposed and then apparently now Washington is well, where easing off. Where was the preparation? Where was the consultative process before a, a major, major policy was enacted as well? 
It does add fuel to the people who think that this administration is making it up on the hoof. By all means, bring in this ban. If you think it's important for national security, uh, if you think that it needs to be on this entity list because of important national security issues as well, but such a momentous decision, surely, surely you actually have this consultative process beforehand because we know that security officials in the United States have been talking to corporates for a long time. They've been briefing corporates for a long time, briefing key institutions for a long time time because they know that there are bigger, wider security and cyber security issues. Why was this brought in and then pulled back on straight away? There's been mixed signals all along with this story. And one of the issues yesterday that came up was that will you have services that crash as a result of uh, this enforcement? And if you look at some rural areas across the United States, and you've got to say coming up to an election in 2020, will you have key services that are stopped? I mean, Oregon and Wyoming were, were two areas that cited that have Huawei equipment, communication services to those particular areas. So did no one in the administration look at these rural areas? Because this is where one of the key issues has come up. In fact, the rural areas are committed in many ways to parts of the Huawei infrastructure. Well, it's a little bit like Europe. I mean, you've got a service here that is very good, but also much cheaper than some of the other services. And you've got cash-strapped parts of the world and cash-strapped parts of one particular country. A lot of them have been buying Huawei equipment. So well, you start to try and push them out of, the, out, of, out of the business uh, of doing communications. What do a lot of these places do? So I would 100% disagree with you that it's a bit like Europe, and not because of the, the, the need for 5G, which you know, you know far better than I is, is absolutely imperative. I would disagree with you because nothing gets done in Europe without miles and miles of years and years of consultation. Hence our argument yesterday about CMU and the dismal situation about capital markets, Union Europe. Nothing gets done until it's way too late in Europe. So actually, I would disagree, whereas like the Europe state the seems to be making it up on the hoof, whereas Europe, nothing gets done. It's the other <laughs> True, on that point, on the funding, though, <laughs> what you've got is really cash-strapped parts of the world, and Huawei's been very important in that, um, that arena. But I want to talk about the time frame. What have we got? Three months here now. So it's being called a housekeeping, three-month extension. Three months also takes us just past the end of June, when President Xi and Trump are expected to meet on the sidelines of G20. So, again, is Huawei political football where it's a trade issue? And if there is a big deal, is Huawei part of that big deal? Or if China and the US get a, a broader deal, is Huawei left out in the cold where these issues still exist? So I think there's still a lot of mixed signals and unanswered questions around what Huawei means at this point. Bit of a morning where we're all frothing with indignation because um, how can you have the world sitting here for the next six weeks trying to figure out what the consequences are going to be of that important meeting? But just to circle back, I mean, one of the problems I think all the way along in the programme of trade sanctions that have been imposed is the administration hasn't quite worked out who is going to bear the immediate pain. And we talked a lot about the imposition of tariffs and the fact that actually the Chinese wouldn't be paying the tariffs. The tariffs would be paid by American companies or American consumers. And here's the challenge with this story. So as you start to look at the consequences of the lack of security updates and the lack of updates on the apps that... Google uh, provides uh, for those who run this operating system. The fact is, in China, nobody uses Google apps. They use WeChat. They use mm. other apps, perhaps that do a similar thing, but they're not Google apps. So minimal effect in terms of the impact directly on the Chinese. Well, and the other issue, the other issue, just to um, finish off here, is the fact that Google uh, needs or wants 
clearly its own standard to become a key and rival standard to Apple. And the fact that Huawei is the second largest selling handset maker in the world, well, that has some impact. If you sell half a billion handsets or half a billion handsets out there are using this operating system, if you stop providing updates, that does limit somewhat an American company's access to the rest of the world. You've got two product launches in London today around the Huawei phones. And what, like a big event. Well, it is meant to be a big event. And yeah. what effect you've got now is no certainty about access to those applications, those apps, but also about any, any software upgrades. So this housekeeping, the three-month extension, means that if you've got a Huawei phone now, you can get the, the improvements to software upgrades and all the services, but not for future ones. That still has not been solved, so there's a, a huge threat still overhanging Huawei. But, you know, you mentioned American companies. What did we see yesterday? An HSBC downgrade to Apple because there are fears around the trade ramifications for Apple. You've got all the chipware makers in the States, from Qualcomm to Intel to Micron, all seeing selling pressure in the trading session yesterday. Sure. So right across the board, we are seeing ramifications. So I think you've touched on and expanded quite rightly on one of the key points here. We look at what happens in domestic USA when these tariffs come in and these bans come in uh, and how that affects US domestically corporates and consumers. Then we look at domestic China uh, and how that's affected. Your, your comment about the Google app was well made. But then you touched upon the fact that there is an international aspect to this as well because these behemoths, Huawei, China, Google, United States and the rest of the United States um, uh, software infrastructure and hardware infrastructure for that matter, have the global battleground. And, and of course, they do interlink on that global battle line because those Google apps are available, because those Huawei handsets are trying to expand so massively, as you point out with that product launch today. So I think that is where we need a lot more focus on where internationally, from India to Singapore to London, to the global perspective of where this battleground, it's a bit like one belt and road, really. It, it, it's, it's commercial or trade imperialism, just like the US and the UK and other countries before them as well. It's the international battleground. I'm interested in see how how there's going to be problems there for the two. Um, so anybody, uh, just uh, a piece of consumer advice, I think anybody that is currently running a Huawei phone, um, perhaps uh, because of this latest news that we're talking about now, there will be a suspension on the restriction on the updates that they'll receive. But be aware, there is a certification process and the old phones are certified for the updates, so they'll continue to get them. But if they do a U-turn on this current decision, any new phones are the ones that will ultimately suffer here. Well, I think it's Martin worth just Lewis. making that point. Like Martin Lewis. <laughs> for, for our <laughs> audience outside the UK, no, one, the no one will understand that reference. But, I mean, clearly that is important, because if you are intending to spend £500 or $500 on a new handset, you want to be sure that you are going to continue to get updates. I mean, the obvious uh, endgame here is that Huawei develops its own operating system, right. and then consumers can decide whether they want its operating system and its suite of apps. Which we had a go about with Arjun yesterday, and apparently there has been some sort of testing, some um, endeavours to try and create an operating system, and just not maybe fit for purpose right now. I think more immediately there is a risk around chips, and Huawei's been saying it subtly in some of its commentary that uh, it does produce half of its chips, the other half it gets from overseas, and there's, there's no way it wants to displace those American yeah. chips, but the threat's there that those American chips may not go into Chinese phones, bulk of them Huawei. I'll ask you a very quick question. Um, you and I think other commentators have said Huawei are streets ahead when it comes to 5G technology or the implementation of that technology. So I believe you spoke to Bordier Ekholm last week. Yes. How re who is the boss of Ericsson? Yes. How ready are the rivals to meet that challenge and to build up an 
internet, uh, sorry, I beg your pardon, an, uh, an exposure to the 5G and other that is rivals what Huawei does at the moment? Because I, is the rest of the world going to take a step back if they ban Huawei? So first up, they have not seen any improvements in their numbers because of the trade fight. So it hasn't been, well, Early days, well though, Huawei it? is not going to be doing business here. Let's just place that order with Ericsson or Nokia. Apparently that's not happening yet. The second thing, if you think about the way supply chains and manufacturing processes are run, if you've got certainty that Huawei is definitely not going to be playing and your order and numbers are going to be this, well, you gear up for that type of manufacturing. It might take you a bit to get there, but you gear up for it. But if you don't have that certainty, what do you do? You can't invest in a system and a process. Thinking Huawei, one minute can play, one minute they can't play, one minute they're going to be playing again. You can't really invest with that level of uncertainty, even if you are meant to be the, the beneficiary. So it, it, I think it's very hard for even the, the so-called winners in the game, the Ericsson's and Nokia's of this world. So inconsistency, confusion and general downright problems for market confidence. Oh, can I give you a good quote? Go on. All the best quotes come from two people on the planet that's ever lived, existed, yes. of course, Oscar Wilde and Mark Twain, oh, as we all know. Winston Churchill's there Oh, somewhere. Winston Churchill was up there as that's well. That's and, and I just found, a, I was looking for consistency quotes this morning, and of course the best one is, is Oscar Wilde. Right. So, consistency is the hallmark of the unimaginative. There you go. Consistency is the hallmark of the unimaginative. Does that make certain politicians around the world very imaginative? Uh, and we'll just leave that one with the audience, shall we? Uh, moving on, let's uh, just update you on this. Speaking to CNBC at the OECD Spring Forum in Paris, the vice chair of the European Parliament's Progressive Alliance of Socialists and Democrats reacted to the recent US backlash against Huawei. On one hand, uh, uh, we Europeans, we need to um, have innovation policy, pushing for new opportunities for business to create uh, both... Uh, new product and service in health, in education, in energy transition. So there are huge opportunities for uh, companies based in Europe to come up with uh, new investments and new jobs. This is one part of the, the story. Uh, on the other part, of course, we need uh, to uh, make sure that our uh, concerns with security, protection of private uh, life, uh, democracy are uh, respected precisely. And so this would be part of what I'm calling the European way to uh, drive the digital revolution. Coming up on the programme, more coverage from the OECD Spring Forum, including an interview with uh, Angie CEO uh, Isabel Kusher. That's uh, coming up at 7.30 CET. Uh, Nigel Farage's Brexit party may be leading in the polls ahead of this week's European elections, but his campaign has hit another sticky note. The former UKIP leader was campaigning in Newcastle when he had a milkshake thrown at him. The man has been arrested on suspicion of common assault. Farage is the latest anti-EU figure to have a milkshake thrown at him in recent weeks. Um, can I just make the point? I don't find it very funny. Um, and I'll tell you why. I'm a bit boring about this as well. Because um, we lost a politician a couple of years ago in the UK to a, a horrendous assault. And she got killed, Joe Cox. Um, if we've got politicians in the street, no matter what people think of Farage, no matter what people think of Nick Clegg or whoever it may well be, or Cameron or whoever the politicians are as well, if people are now assaulting politicians on the street... Now, it was a milkshake today, but his security, despite the fact he had very good security there, let this guy get near it. If that had been something more serious, 
we might have lost another politician. No matter again, no matter what people in the think people think about Nigel Farage, and he is the most divisive character I think out there at the moment. Certainly one of the top two or three. So I, I actually take a really po-faced, boring view of this as well. As much as I read Twitter and everywhere getting really excited and having a great fun at Nigel Farage's expense. And I guess, you know, milkshake on a suit can be mirthful. But if we start losing politicians to assault, that's when I start getting boring about it. Yeah, you make a good point about the sort of security threats that police uh, have to monitor on the and ground. There was a police protection officer or a, uh, a community support officer or whatever, and they were all useless. It's becoming a thing, though, around milkshakes, isn't it? Because, I mean, McDonald's was told to stop selling the drink around what? a couple of the uh, key what? party events. Really? Because of the milkshake threat. They weren't. Apparently. Plenty. Is that po face to me? Sorry if I made it a bit boring. Uh, I think we're all on the same page. Mm. I don't think anybody disagrees. I think it's uh, an abysmal way of conducting politics, yeah. quite frankly. If you, to... if you want to win the argument, have the argument. Mm. We've got a busy old week coming up. Uh, we're going to continue the preview of this week's European elections when we get out to Sylvia right after the break. And uh, just a reminder, if you can't get enough of Sporkbox, be sure to tune in for our very own podcast. Head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from to have a listen and to download today's episode. For our listeners out there, stick around for some more. French President Emmanuel Macron, uh, after having talks with Karen... Ch no, that was last week. Well done, Karen, again. Uh, Mr Macron, anyway, has held talks with the EU Council President Donald Tusk in Paris ahead of this week's European elections. In a tweet, Tusk said they looked ahead to EU Council summits in May and June when heads of state will make appointments to key positions such as the EU Commission President. Um, Sylvia in Brussels, good morning, carrying out sterling work, if I may say so, or Euro work, if you like to put it that way as well. Um, look, these should be crisis talks at the moment, aren't they? Are they crisis talks? So the European leaders know that Rome's burning, not literally, but, you know, the, the old fiddling situation, because things are in crisis. They're going to get a drubbing in the next couple of days, aren't they? Well, the appointment, uh, these four appointments for the presidency of the ECB, the European Commission, Council and the Parliament are very important indeed. And it will depend essentially on the outcome of the European elections. If we see a lot of support for populist parties, for nationalist parties, then that could uh, impact the decision in the European Council. When the leaders meet, the first time being next week, they will discuss for the first time who might get these four presidencies. Now, these discussions are very important indeed. The bilateral discussions have started as we saw yesterday in Paris. But the content of this discussion, Steve, is being kept very secretive. We know one official explained to me here yesterday that next week when the leaders meet here in Brussels to discuss these appointments, there will be no advisors in the room. So it's going to be only the 28 heads of state deciding these four top jobs. And of course, it's expected that they might come to an, a conclusion in June if they manage to reach an agreement. There's a lot of talk right now among market players about the presidency of the ECB. But let's not forget about the presidency of the European Commission, the institution you see behind me, the executive arm of the EU. Because different analysts have said that the next economic and financial shock 
could come from irresponsible fiscal policies and it's up to the Commission to oversee compliance with the fiscal rules. So let's not forget about that role as well. Let me tell you about Brexit. This is going to be the big elephant in the room in the summit next week when the leaders discuss these appointments. Prime Minister Theresa May will also have a say in these discussions because the UK is still a full member of the EU. However, some officials here in Brussels have told me that they wouldn't mind seeing Theresa May abstaining from these discussions. They believe that these appointments are about the future of the EU and that's something that the UK does not want to be part of, at least from within the EU. Guys. This is extraordinary, Sylvia, and I don't want to overplay it, and I'm not doing this for dramatic effect, but you're telling our viewers that the most important positions in Europe, in Brussels as well, uh, as part of the supranational state, will be decided in closed doors without any form uh, of advisors, without any form of pro due process. It's basically just political bargaining uh, to work out who they want and who they don't want in these key positions. Do you not think that's going to fuel the populists across Europe who think that the EU is undemocratic? Well, the leaders of the EU have been elected by their own people. So in that sense, you could argue that the decision is indeed democratic. The first discussion next week is indeed expected to be just between the 20 heads of the 28 heads of state. But then, of course, they're likely to go back home and discuss this issue with their advisors. Let's not forget that until June, until the summit, when they're expected to come to a conclusion, there will be a lot of bilateral discussions, a lot of phone calls between the different capitals. So let's see what's going to come out of those meetings. There's no one single job that's more important than the other. The ECB presidency is indeed very important. The European Commission as well, they all have their own different uh, roles. And when it comes to European policy making, these are all uh, interconnected. And of course, they all have an impact on what happens at the EU, also in terms of economic and fiscal policies. Uh, Sylvia, thank you very much indeed for that, Sylvia, with us uh, out of Brussels. Of course, the reality is when, when we come back to these elections, I think from, from our audience's perspective, the only thing that really matters at this stage is just how big the Eurosceptic vote actually is. Because you can put whoever you want in those key positions, but if there is no mandate from the Parliament because it is divided as a result of a strong showing by the Eurosceptic right and left, then ultimately there'll be limited passage of any legislation and whenever there is uh, executive initiative on policy like let's have more Europe rather than less Europe, there will be pushback from the Parliament. And at the end of the day, it's Parliament that will have to vote on any of the policies. See, so yeah. we could have stasis here in Europe for yeah. some time to come. And all of the above. The only way, I, again, Sylvia makes some brilliant points as ever, but I would just rebuff slightly. These are absolutely correctly independent leaders elected by electorates in their own country. Now, if they are um, thereafter picking bureaucrats, then that's absolutely right. But if they are then thereafter picking European leaders of a supranational organisation who are going to be representing and leading Europe on key policies, surely there is an, uh, an electoral democratic deficit because you're not picking mandarins, you're picking ministers and leaders who will be creating policy. There's a big difference between being elected by your own electorate and then thereafter creating mandarins and civil servants and then thereafter picking political leaders. 
standards, isn't it? I believe when you get the numbers right but per country, that you get a greater say on who the key ministry role should be. So there is an element uh, that the people cast their vote and you have the numbers, therefore you cast your vote for the leader. And this is one of the issues. I mean, I spoke to Margaret de Vestager, who was up for the European Commission presidency, very popular figure with voters, yet her chances might be quite limited in terms of getting that top job because there's so much power broking going on behind the scenes. For instance, the Germans having a very big say in other countries too. So there was something in the debate that was held last, year, last week with the uh, leaders, the potential contenders for that position. And in that debate, she was pushing for a digital tax. If you think, who wanted a digital tax and who wants one? France. Yeah. So again, it's about positioning to try and get the key support for that top job. So I think the support for a digital tax was a sort of what way to try and get wrong? the French vote. When, when our viewers go to the polls next week, what would be wrong with, in the, the box where you say who you want in the European Parliament, what would be wrong with having a separate box? Is who do you want? These are your candidates. These are the ones we've got it down to. Who do you want to be the leader of the European Union? Well, you what put a, you put a lot of power in that role then, don't you? Power yeah. that, that really can't be executed. But surely then that would take away the argument executive from the powers. But wouldn't that take away the argument from the populace that it's not an undemocratic institution if we could actually pick the leader of Europe ourselves? What powers does the European president have, though, to do anything? So is there, is there any point? Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.